information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericabusiness.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Like a chrysalis, we're emerging from the economy of the Industrial Revolution, an economy confined to and limited by the Earth's physical resources into the economy in mind, in which there are no bounds on human imagination, and the freedom to create is the most precious natural resource. Welcome to the Soul of Enterprise, Business and the Knowledge Economy, sponsored by SAGE, supporting small and medium-sized businesses by creating greater freedom for them to succeed. I'm Ron Baker, along with my good friend, Verisage Institute colleague and co-host, Ed Kless. And Ed, today we are so honored. We have my all-time mentor on the line uh, for the entire show, um, George Gilder. Uh, George, thank you so much for appearing on the Soul of Enterprise. Oh, it's good. The soul of enterprise is just what I'm about, so I'm delighted to be here. <laughs> well, this show is, is basically inspired by, by your work, and, and I have to tell you, back in 1981, my father, who's a barber, in fact, he was born two years uh, before you, so you're roughly the same age. Uh, he read your Playboy interview in 1981. He took me out to lunch and said, you need to read this guy's book. This guy wrote this incredible book. Everybody's raving about it. Reagan passed it around to his cabinet. He said, you know, he, apparently he read 200 books that are in his, cited in his, his bibliography. And, and, and I poo-pooed it, George. I said, oh, come on, Dad. There's a lot of crackpot economists. A lot of people write, you know, economic. And I... And, and for some reason that I can't explain, and I think it ties into your, your book, Men and Marriage and the Faith of Fathers, my dad persisted, and he went out, and he bought me the book, and he threw it at me, and he said, read this. And I did, and I did it in one sitting, and it turned my world upside down. And, and that's kind of how I learned about you. So I, it, I owe it all to my dad. Well, thank you so much, Rod. It's, uh, and... Uh I really think I've taken this knowledge and power concept another step forward now in knowledge and power, which is an outgrowth of Wealth and Poverty, the book that Reagan read and made me Reagan's most quoted living author. But uh, it took me another 25 years or more from 1980 to, gosh, uh, 2013 to uh, really figure out that uh, economics is best expressed as information theory, that uh, a capitalist economy is not chiefly an incentive system, but an information system. And uh, this is a hard thing to swallow because all economics is based on incentives, and incentives are obviously important. But the fundamental concept at the center of economics is is called homo economicus, you know, uh, a human being as chiefly a, a function 
of the forces around them, a, a function of uh, outside conditions and forces. And, and uh, information theory says the human being is not a mere function. He's a creator in the image of his, his creator. And that is, he's creative in the image of his creator. And the key property of creation is surprise. If it's uh, truly new, the measure of its novelty is its surprisal, its unexpectedness. And, and that is uh, uh, the crucial principle of capitalism, that, that it's an information system bringing new creations into the world. And, and George, you've been saying that. I, I know it's some Princeton professor you quote, Hirschman, Alan Hirschman, who, who said, you know, creativity Alfred should always, is, yeah, yeah cre- creativity should always take us by surprise. And, 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 and you've added to that, otherwise planning would work and socialism would work. And, uh, yeah. you know, I don't, want, I don't want to live in a world that's planned. But let me ask you, because, you know, a lot of economists, a lot of supply side economists or libertarian or right-leaning, like people like Stephen Landsberg, you know, Stephen Landsberg has a great line, Pe- people respond to incentives, the rest is in commentary. And what I love about Knowledge and Power, your, your latest book, is you say incentives are like greed, they're ubiquitous. They, and, and, you know, you can't blame an airplane crash on gravity, and you can't blame anything on greed, because you, you can't blame change on a constant. And you flushed out this theory of the creativity and creative destruction of capitalism or entrepreneurship with information theory. Can you kind of explain information theory, Claude Shannon, and and his concept of that? Well, uh, after writing Wealth and Poverty, I went to Silicon Valley and uh, wrote a newsletter on the semiconductor industry, the microchip industry. And... Underlying all the semiconductor industry and the computer systems that evolved from semiconductors and the internet of connections, which uh, uh, were further expression of network computers, is Claude Shannon's information theory. And uh, Claude Shannon defined information as unexpected bits. And uh, calculating information as unexpected bits, he could uh, measure the bandwidth, the capacity of any uh, communications link. And uh, being able to measure it, he could then uh, interconnect it with other information links and uh, be sure that the network would function, that uh, it, it was the basic uh, uh, insights of the Internet came from information theory, and the basic insights of computer science also came from information theory. Of, uh, uh, Shannon was the first to really formulate the bit and the byte and uh, define them. And so uh, this is really underlies our our technologies, and uh, our technologies really do drive our economy. 
So uh, it makes sense that the information theory that underlies our technologies also can be used to explain our economy. And, um, and, and, and I, I, I discovered it really does. It, it really, it's an ingenious way of, of looking at the role of the entrepreneur because I guess economics has never really had a good theory of the entrepreneur. You know, they've chalked it up to randomness or spontaneous order or whatever, and you're really flushing it out here and giving it a theory. It's not just about responding to incentives or price arbitrage. It's really an act of creativity. Yeah, and, and what, what I just, I really came to do was to simplify these concepts. Concepts basically, uh, wealth is knowledge, and and you really can tell that because as Thomas Sowell said in 1971, uh, the Neanderthal in his cave had all the material resources we have today. The difference between our age and the Stone Age is entirely attributable to the accumulation of knowledge. Right. And, and uh, this, this, I think, is a crucial way to look at uh, wealth. Wealth is knowledge. But if wealth is knowledge, what is growth? And I think this was the most important insight. If wealth is knowledge, growth is learning. And... Uh, and I'd long been fascinated by learning curves. Uh, several of my books contain a uh, long explanation of learning curves. And, and uh, the uh, Boston Consulting Group and uh, Frank Haggerty of Texas Instruments and Bain and Company all pioneered the science of learning curves and extended them to almost all, really all, activities in a capitalist economy. Every, with every doubling of total units of value produced, uh, you get a drop in costs of 20 to 30 percent. And learning curves have been demonstrated for all across the economy, from the production of, of eggs, to insurance policies, to uh, microchips, to bandwidth, to uh, every, everything in an economy can be described by a learning curve. And, and so it becomes reasonable to take a step forward and say if wealth is knowledge, growth is learning. Learning. But, I love that. And, and, and it's learning through falsifiable experiments, which is what each new business launch is. Like, I know you're a big fan of Karl Popper, and if something's not falsifiable, it's not scientific. And each business is a falsifiable experiment, isn't it? That's correct. That's very, that's just right. Uh, learning is governed by Popperian falsifiability. There are lots of arguments about Popper and just how complete an explanation of of scientific progress, Popper expounded, but uh, it works beautifully in an economy. Uh, businesses succeed because to in generating real growth because they 
perform entrepreneurial tests of new business ideas. And these tests can only yield knowledge and wealth if they can fail, if they're falsifiable, if, if they can go bankrupt. And that's why uh, government's constantly trying to guarantee things in order to produce growth. But guarantees are absolutely inimical to a learning process. If it's guaranteed, it, it doesn't yield learning. It's, it's, uh, it's, it's low entropy in uh, Shannon's model, entropy being Shannon's uh, uh, way of defining surprisal or unexpected bits or creativity. Right. So really, the economy is more about ideas than it is about incentives. Yes, that's right. It's more about ideas than it is about incentives. And, uh, and, and, but, and the ideas, but the ideas have to be embodied in real experiments, and which have to be uh, fully tested and which can be falsified and which are uh, enacted in a market process that uh, renders the knowledge uh, institutional and cumulative and thus uh, allows capitalist wealth. And that's why when you have all these government guarantees all over the economy, somehow it doesn't, if you guarantee everything, uh, the whole system suffers the biggest risk, which is uh, systemic risk. The whole system uh, collapses, and that's the great danger we face today, that we've, uh, that our economy is so interwoven and interwept with government regulations and guarantees and specifications and rules and that are really incomprehensible to any individual in it and thus uh, become uh, just noise in the system and information theory terms. Uh, if uh, the channel is full of noise. You can't uh, communicate over it. And right. Government, so, capricious government regulation is just noise in the channel. George, this, that's a brilliant insight. Wealth is knowledge. Growth is learning. And, and also somewhere else you wrote that knowledge is about the past and entrepreneurship is about the future. And I just absolutely love that. But unfortunately, George, the clock is up against it and we're, we've got to run to a break. But uh, we're going to go to this break, folks. When we come back, I'm going to get Ed in here and he's going to take over and ask uh, Mr. Gilder some questions. We're really excited to have him on the show. And now we want to hear from our sponsor, Leading Results. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. Is your website just a brochure or is it your best salesperson? If your site is not the best lead generation tool you have, we should talk. We are leading results. We build websites and marketing programs that impact your bottom line. Using HubSpot or WordPress, we'll create a website and supporting marketing program that gets your business found, converts web visitors to leads, and provides clear tracking on what is and is not working. Learn about our team and approach to your success. Visit leadingresults.com slash TSOE to find out more. 
you ever read a book that changed your life? I sure have. But have you ever read a book where the forward changed your life? Me neither. Hello, I'm Greg Kite. I wrote the forward to Ron Baker and Ed Kless's new ebook, The Soul of Enterprise, Dialogues on Business and the Knowledge Economy. The value of this book is found entirely in its forward. So when you buy it, think of it as buying the forward and getting the rest of the book for free. Available now for download exclusively on Amazon.com. The business community's first choice in Internet Talk Radio. Voice America Business Network. tuned into the soul of enterprise with ron baker and ed class to find out more about our show visit us on the web at the soul of you can also chat with us on twitter using hashtag ask tsoe now back to the soul of enterprise and we are back with George Gilder, uh, George Ed Kless here. My pleasure to meet you. My my relationship to you is through Ron, so I guess I owe it to Ron's dad as well. <laughs> but uh, <laughs> but I, I wanted to just pick up on on you. We were talking a little bit about knowledge and power, and I just got one question on, on that, and that is if um, if all wealth is the accumulation of knowledge, how accurately can that then be measured? Well, it can be measured if you have a measuring stick. And one of the real problems in uh, the current economy is the measuring stick is now floating. It's now part of what it measures. That is, money is the measuring stick of economic activity. And and uh, money through the centuries... At much of the time has uh, expressed a particular weight of gold and uh, thus has uh, had a tie to the actual physical constants of the universe. And my new book, uh, which is available for free at the American Principles Project.org uh, and a PDF, you can download it. Uh, shows that the reason gold has been such a valuable measuring stick is is not that gold is shiny or gold is valuable or gold is a good conductor of electricity or gold is jewelry, but rather that uh, uh, gold is not part of... uh, uh, as money, gold is not part of what it measures. Gold, gold, through history, has canceled out economic progress in itself, and since, and it's canceled it out just pretty much by ha- happenstance. It so happens that uh, as technology for mining gold and uh, transporting it and finding it and collecting it has improved, the gold itself has become more difficult to extract from deeper loads and more thinner deposits. And so the new technology has been canceled out by the 
greater costs of finding the gold, and what's left is a measure of time. Gold is measured by the time it takes to extract it. And, and uh, time is actually the one unmanipulable, unhortable, unstealable, unfalsifiable, uh, you know, it's the one um, element in the universe that uh, is a perfect measuring stick. And, in fact, when people try, do try to create uh, measure, measuring units, metrics, uh, and uh, root them in physical constants, as at the Système International in Paris, where they uh, measure the meter and the second and the lumen and the ampere and the mole and the kilogram and all these different uh, units of measurement, they all finally are rooted in time because they eat, they all uh, have to uh, refer to some frequency or some temperature or some other uh, metric that is rooted in the passage of time. A frequency is so many cycles per second. The temperature is so many oscillations per second. They're all based ultimately in the speed of light. And money is also based on time. And uh, gold, and that's why gold has been the measuring stick over the centuries that succeeded. And, and uh, when uh, Satoshi Nakamoto, uh, the, the pseudonymous inventor of Bitcoin, tried to create a new currency, his chief goal was to mimic gold and its roots in the passage of time. And so if you got wealth is knowledge, growth is learning, Money is ultimately time, and uh, and and if you man manipulate money, you manipulate interest rates, manipulate uh, the measuring stick, uh, you end up uh, really trying to manipulate time, and time always wins. <laughs> well, I, I teach a project management class for Sage, and one of the things that I say during the class is that time is a constraint, not a resource. And uh, what what You're right. fascinates that's an important insight. Yeah, no, it's it's critical. And now this is this is uh, coming around to our our audience, uh, George. We uh, one of the things that Ron and I teach is we teach a course about getting off of the billable hour for professional firms because we believe that it's a it's a challenge because the it's really based on Marx's labor theory of value, right? And that you know people shouldn't shouldn't charge for their time. Now, what I find so interesting about this, and what is what is creating some real uh, cognitive dissonance for me, and I'm, and I think for Ron as well, is you know we we have railed against this idea of of, of charging for time because we said that time is not money. But you're making a very subtle difference, and it's it's almost not an equals, right? It's you're saying money uh, time is not money, but money is time because. Otherwise, if access to gold represents time and effort of extraction, wouldn't that make Marx's labor theory of value correct, in a sense? Look, it's, it's, it's not, you see, if it's labor, then labor comes all sorts of different qualities, and, and it 
entails different forms of capital and tools and technologies and different levels of sophistication and knowledge. It's so the crucial point is that the measuring stick can't be part of what it measures. And if you have money based on the measuring, measuring stick of human labor and creativity, you got money as part of what it measures. And so it can no longer be a guide or a, or a anchor of value. It, it just is part of the process of learning and growth that uh, characterizes the economy. So the crucial thing is money has to be a measuring stick, and that means the measurement has to be rooted outside of what it measures, and that means time. And, and it's, it's, it's not labor time, it's time itself. And that, as you say, is not a resource. It's a constraint. It's, it's what uh, forces trade-offs. It's what um, allows you to allocate resources and, and to uh, define priorities. It, you know, I always say that uh, uh, socialists sort of assume infinite time. And, uh, and if you have infinite time, everything's possible. So nothing can be measured or, or uh, calculated. And it's recognizing that uh, time, that money is time, and it uh, constrains your uh, decisions is crucial to uh, understanding the real nature of money and uh and economics. I hope that, yeah, I hope that wasn't completely confusing. I, uh, it's it is a subtle difference, though. It's not labor. If it's labor, then it's then you can have the computers involved and Moore's laws advance, and and uh, money just becomes a plaything of the financiers, and pretty soon the whole economy is dominated by finance. And that is the peril we currently face. The horizons of uh, investment shrink until finally you have uh, uh, markets dominated by flash boys, as they call them, Michael Lewis, uh, <clears throat> doing uh, transactions in microseconds. Yep. Great. Thank you. No, it, it was not confusing. It, it actually provided a lot of clarity for myself. So thank you. Um, you we've got a, about two minutes for a break here. And I want to you, you brought up Bitcoin. So I have two quick questions about Bitcoin. I'll get them out and then we can see where they go. But do you do you think that Bitcoin uh, is might grow faster in some of the emerging world countries as it is in Argentina, and then actually r- loop itself back to here in the more developed world? Yeah, I, I, I think that's one of the things that is happening. Another thing that's happening is Bitcoin is emerging. The Bitcoin blockchain is emerging as a new layer of Internet software. You know, the Internet under the OSI model, as it's called, has uh, seven layers, and some of them are being collapsed and merged. But essentially, there's seven layers. Uh, which uh, 
spring from Shannon's theory, and I believe that uh, we need an eighth layer, and that's a transactions and trust layer. And I think uh, that uh, the Bitcoin blockchain can be layer eight on the Internet and, uh, and gradually become uh, an increasingly important force in the world economy. And uh, I think this is positive because it, it represents a return to a new form of gold rooted in time. Yeah. And so last quick question on Bitcoin and then we'll take the break. And you have studied Bitcoin well, much more than I have. And and I have asked this question to a lot of people and I never really get, I think, a satisfactory answer is what happens when we get to 21 million Bitcoin? We, we have a learning curve. Um, you know, people are so have been taught to believe that. Uh, that uh, inflation is the natural condition of capitalist economics. And this is really giving up. If you think costs are always going up, you are essentially saying that learning has stopped and we're in a long period of secular stagnation, as Larry Summers puts it. But uh, the fact is, that uh, the natural condition of capitalism is for prices to go down and uh, everything gets cheaper all the time. And uh, as Bitcoin gets to, uh, you know, they're, they're also, uh, you know, the granularity of a Bitcoin is 100 million units. So there's not a big danger that it's uh, going to... Uh, represents some kind of constriction on economic growth. I think it, uh, the fact that it, time is the one thing that doesn't, that, that remains scarce when everything else grows abundant. And, uh, and you have to have the time manifested in the monetary system or uh, the monetary system can't regulate uh, transactions and commerce. Excellent. Th- thank you so much. Well, we're up against our second break, so thanks for, uh, all of you for joining us. But we'd like to remind you that you can email us at asktsoe at verisage.com. But right now, we want to hear from our sponsor, Azamba. <laughs> making it easier to listen to the Voice America Talk Radio Network live wherever you go on iPhone, BlackBerry, or Android. Download it from the Apple iTunes App Store, BlackBerry App World, or Android Market. What if you could close more business with less effort and do it faster? What could your people accomplish if they had their own personal assistant keeping track of meetings and reminding them of follow-ups? What would it mean to have a perfect view of what your team and your prospects and your customers are doing? What if you could run your business from anywhere? You can have it all. Visit www.azamba.com forward slash soul today to find out how. That's azamba, A-Z-A-M-B-A dot com forward slash soul. Have you ever read a book that changed your life? I sure have. But have you ever read a book where the foreword changed your life? Me neither. 
Hello, I'm Greg Kite. I wrote the foreword to Ron Baker and Ed Kless's new ebook, The Solemn Enterprise Dialogues on Business and the Knowledge Economy. The value of this book is found entirely in its foreword. So when you buy it, think of it as buying the foreword and getting the rest of the book for free. Available now for download exclusively on Amazon.com. When it comes to business, you'll find the experts here. Voice America Business Network. You are tuned into The Soul of Enterprise with Ron Baker and Ed Class. To find out more about our show, visit us on the web at thesoulofenterprise.com. You can also chat with us on Twitter using hashtag AskTSOE. Now, back to The Soul of Enterprise. Welcome back, everybody. We're so honored to have George Gilder with us. And, and George, there's so many things I want to talk to you about. Uh, your book, Knowledge and Power, your book, The Israel Test, which I just think is brilliant. But we did get, I did get a, a question from one of our uh, devoted listeners who wanted me to ask you about inequality. And I, you know, this is a hot topic right now. But you point out in your book, uh, The Israel Test, that the Jewish population, and I think this, these are worldwide figures, represent some three-tenths of 1% of the, of the world's population, but yet they're 25% of the notable accomplishments. And you say, whatever the inequality of income is, it's dwarfed by the inequality of contribution. Yeah. Do you really think inequality is moral? Yes. Uh, I think that, uh, you know, there's a great misunderstanding that afflicts all these analyses of inequality. The assumption is that uh, the wealth that uh, entrepreneurs command is comparable to wages or, or even salaries. You know, the wealth is illiquid uh, and its management is extremely demanding. And it is not available in general for uh, uh, capricious or indulgent use. It's it's uh, it just isn't uh, the fact that Bill Gates uh, is supposedly worth eighty five what a billion or whatever it is. Uh, that's it's it's irrelevant to his lifestyle almost. I mean, he, he spends a smaller proportion of the yield of that fortune than uh, almost anybody else in the world, probably than anybody else in the world. He's, you know, he leaves, lives an abstemious life and uh, he manages this fortune. And, and uh, if he stops managing it or abandons it or tries to sell it out, it'll decline in value possibly faster than he can sell it. Uh, It's just, it's not, uh, it's just, you can't compare the the wealth of uh, entrepreneurs to uh, the wealth of a worker. It just isn't as, they're different phenomena. Right. Now, like I believe, now, I believe. Now, I believe there is an inequality problem, and it's that the problem is the shrinking of the investment horizons and uh, uh, government guarantees for all these financial 
uh, speculations and and uh, and uh, that uh, the emergence of the biggest industry in the world economy by far, by far the biggest industry by volume is currency trading. And it's the largest industry in the world economy, and it's uh, the most useless. And so it, it does not yield uh, a measuring stick or uh, currency values that are valid or, uh, or less volatile and variable than uh, economic activity that it measures. So if it, and, uh, you know, Wall Street likes volatility. Wall Street in its current uh, organization with all its government ties uh, feeds on volatility and uh, what wants the downside protected by government. Entrepreneurs uh, want a dependable currency values with the upside guaranteed by the rule of law. And, uh, and so the real inequality, I think, is between those parts of the economy that are really guaranteed by government and thus they're not really contributing to the to uh, economic growth and progress and the entrepreneurial activities that uh, create all our wealth and but they depend on uh, what I call a low entropy channel a, a predictable channel of law and tradition and and morality and aspiration uh, is the low entropy ch channel for the creative contributions of capitalism. And when you're manipulating the currency, uh, you know, it's, it's, it can't be a magic wand to create growth. Money isn't a magic wand. It's a measuring stick. Right. And, and, and as you point out, knowledge and power, that my, when, when Gates did run Microsoft, it was amassed. He was tied to. And, and yeah. that seems to be the genius of capitalism is it gives the, the, the capital to the people who can invest it the best and make it grow, develop that learning through falsifiable experiments. Exactly. That's the, the secret of capitalism is it awards to the people who prove that they're capable of creating wealth the right to reinvest it. If they start consuming it, then they withdraw from that process and they no longer are really uh, creating wealth. But uh, as, as long as they are engaged in the entrepreneurial process, they get the right to reinvest uh, the money that they make and through uh, this learning process of enterprise and George Ed, Ed here again I, I want to th thank you for that it was a great explanation I'm going to uh, take you back I have a favorite sentence of yours <laughs> and I'm going to share it with with me and kind of get get your take on it and it goes back to wealth and poverty and it's it's this sentence um, Say's law was not only refuted it was implicitly reversed with cause and effect hopelessly confused in the proposition that demand created its own supply. 
take and you will be given unto. Do you think that's still true today with this uh, the inequality debate? And, and are you optimistic or pessimistic about the future? I guess even short and long term. Well, uh, the key thing to understand is that this is a technology, uh, this is an economy of mind. And uh, an economy of mind can change as fast as minds can change. And and so, uh, in Knowledge and Power, I give all kinds of examples of countries that have turned around overnight and uh, transformed themselves from hopelessly stagnant and uh, sclerotic uh, socialist um, swamps into amazing creative ascendancy. And, uh, and they, when they do it, it happens overnight. The U.S. did it. In 1946, a lot of people uh, don't really understand what happened and how amazing it was that uh, in 1946 we elected a Republican Congress that uh, all the economists thought were troglodytes and fools, and this Republican Congress defied uh, the view of Paul Samuelson and the other economists that uh, unless we continued government spending at the same level that we had during the war, we would return to a great depression of dislocation and, and demoralization, unprecedented in economics, as Samuelson said. Instead, the, that Republican Congress laid off 150,000 bureaucrats and uh, uh, probably a million government workers, not including the military, and cut government spending by 61% over two or three years, and cut taxes in half, essentially, by uh, uh, authorizing the joint return for families. And the, the result was, uh, you know, the uh, beginning of what we now look back on as a golden age, but it's worth remembering that it started with a 61% drop in government spending. Well, I, I hope that the that the current Republican con- and future Republican Congresses take take note of that and take it to your your advice to heart. Well, we're up against our last break, so uh, th- thanks to George Gilder, we will have one more segment with him after our last word from my employer, Sage. Follow us on Twitter at VoiceAmericaTRN. Get the lowdown on guests, new shows, and your favorites. That's VoiceAmericaTRN. Four new employees. A 20% increase in revenue. Being one of the 9 million women business owners in the U.S. These are your proudest numbers, your landmarks of growth and success. Sage helps you achieve business milestones with cloud and software solutions that lead to deeper financial insights. Believe in your numbers. See what Sage can do for your business. Visit believeinyournumbers.com today. Have you ever read a book that changed your life? 
I sure have. But have you ever read a book where the forward changed your life? Me neither. Hello, I'm Greg Kite. I wrote the forward to Ron Baker and Ed Kless's new ebook, The Soul of Enterprise, Dialogues on Business and the Knowledge Economy. The value of this book is found entirely in its forward. So when you buy it, think of it as buying the forward and getting the rest of the book for free. Available now for download exclusively on Amazon.com. We're always talking business. Talk to an expert. Call now, toll free, 866-472-5790. That's 866-472-5790. Voice America Business Network. tuned into the soul of enterprise with ron baker and ed class to find out more about our show visit us on the web at the soul of you can also chat with us on twitter using hashtag ask tsoe now back to the soul of enterprise well, welcome back everybody we're here with george gilder and george your your most recent book you've mentioned it and, and we will post show notes folks with links to where you can find george we'll put up all of his books including his new one that you can download in pdf which is called the 21st century case for gold a new information theory george this this little monograph of yours uh, just blew my mind and one of the things you say is you you recount the trip to china with melton friedman and in this paper you say melton friedman was wrong about monetary theory why was or how was melton friedman wrong in your opinion I, I have a T-shirt that I got at, from some economic conference with Milton Friedman on the front of it, and MV equals PT to right. sum up Milton Friedman's monetarism. And MV means the money supply, all the purchasing media in the economy, the money supply times velocity, that's the turnover of the money, equals essentially prices times transactions or GDP output, GDP essentially. And Milton Friedman assumed that uh, the money supply ruled, and this was his big theme of monetarism. If you control the money supply, you really could uh, control nominal GDP, that's and uh, and have a big influence on real GDP. And that's the monetarist faith. And uh, if that's true, then it is really important, obviously, to have good control over the money supply. And it's good to have an experts at the Federal Reserve Board uh, regulate money. And, and it's crucial not to have the people control money because... Uh, it's it's so important, and but uh, it depends on V being a constant. You know, essentially V velocity, the turnover of the money, has to be reasonably constant. And and uh, uh, Friedman got a Nobel Prize for explaining, in part, for explaining why it was a constant. It was an effect of psychological propensities embodied in lifetime savings targets. You uh, save when you're young and you spend when you're old. And, you know, it's, in other words, velocity isn't part of the economy. And um, it's, 
expression of this psychological propensity. Assume that turnover uh, was around 1.7 times a year of velocity. And uh, this was a rule of economic science. And there were times when it seemed to be relatively, uh, velocity did seem to be relatively stable. And it's stable when, uh, when the measuring stick is stable. But uh, as soon as we adopted Friedman's floating rates, uh, velocity became volatile. And so uh, velocity is now wildly more volatile uh, than, uh, than the actual economic uh, activity that uh, these measuring sticks are supposed to measure. So, so uh, monitorism doesn't work anymore. And velocity, when you think about it, is the way we control the economy. How we we decide whether we like this money and whether we're going to spend it a lot because it's dropping in value, or whether we're going to save it, or whether we're going to make long-term investments. So velocity really embodies a whole array of uh, human participation in the economy, and so. Friedman's monitorism was a mistake, as Friedman himself acknowledged in 2003 in uh, one of his last interviews was with the Financial Times, and he just acknowledged that uh, that the targeting the money supply did not work, and uh, and he he said if if I had to do it over again, I wouldn't stress the money supply the way I did in the past, or that's essentially what he said. And, right. and so, but still, uh, you know, all these, the Fed people all assume that if you can control the money supply, and one of the 16 different categories or whatever of, uh, of money, uh, you actually can regulate the economy and keep prices stable and expand employment and and it's and it's all uh, delusional from my point of view. I, it's, I think it, that the, it's the demand side delusion. Money, sorry, it, I'm sorry, George. It's demand side delusion, isn't it? Much like yeah, Keynesianism with fiscal policy. That's uh, right. You know, you say in the paper that velocity is an expression of our freedom, and I, and I just love that. And the other thing that you point out, uh, it, uh, the Steve Forbes quote, that floating the currency is like floating the clock. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's a great it. line because, the, like you say, if money is time and it needs to be constant, and that's the beauty of time. It's a constant measuring stick. George, we've yeah. only got a couple minutes, and I want to get Ed in here because he's got a question for you, but I'm going to set it up. You delivered what I think is probably the absolute best moral case for free markets, capitalism, whatever you want to call it, to the Vatican in a speech you gave called The Soul of Silicon in 1997. And my question, and I just love that, by the way, I read it twice a year. That, I just think that oh, is the most you. profound I'll go back thing. to it. I haven't read it for a while. Oh, it, George, it's just an inspired piece of writing. Was the okay. Pope in attendance when you delivered that speech? No, there were cardinals in attendance. There were a whole bunch of, uh, of but I don't think the, the Pope himself wasn't there. They, you know, the thing got printed uh, and uh, distributed around the Vatican, so it was a, it was a significant 
document, and the Pope might have read it, but uh, he was not there when I when I addressed okay. some group of cardinals and other high officials in the in the church. Uh, right. I wish the I, new Pope would read it. Go, well, go ahead, and, that's, and that's my that's and that's my question, George. Is recently Ramesh Panuru of the National Review published an article that was entitled "Puzzling Out Pope Francis," in which he posits that the Pope is often misquoted and out of context. But what what are your thoughts on on Pope Francis? Well, I think it partly uh, he's reacting to uh, to this you know this carnival of of currency trading and speculation that uh, has uh, uh, dominated economics for the last decade of floating currencies or less. And and I, I think uh, he doesn't understand it, but he intuitively knows that something's wrong. And he's right that something's wrong. Unfortunately, he doesn't have any language for explaining what it is. And he gets... Uh, captured by the left and he makes big blunders like adopting climate change as a moral cause and all these other mistakes that he's making but uh, I think you know he's I gather he's influenced by Peronism and uh, Peronism in Argentina isn't that right? Um, Yes he's sort of It's yeah. sort of a product of that very failed populist assumption that really assumes that time is infinite, and so anything's possible. And uh, and I think that is uh, a misconception. Well, that that's outstanding. I think that's very much along the lines of what Ron and I have have both thought. Perhaps our, we also did have Father Robert Sirico on, and I know you are, are friends or at least know him. So perhaps yeah, when yeah. the Pope comes 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 to the United States, uh, Father Sirico will get an audience with him and straighten him out. <laughs> but, I, I hope he does. <laughs> well, thank you so much for being on the show, George. This has been absolutely outstanding. Ron, I'll let you take it and close. Yeah, George, I just want to say uh, on the back of the book, Knowledge and Power, there's a blurb from Rush Limbaugh, and it says, My friends, it would behoove you to study everything you can get your hands on by George Gilder, a true American genius. And, and George, I don't know if you know this, but one day on his radio show, Rush said, if I didn't have my brain, I'd want Gilder's. <laughs> I never heard that. Oh, yeah, and, and I have to say, I, I agree. I have to say ditto. <laughs> so, so well, George, I, I work at Discovery Institute in Seattle. We're pursuing all these issues. Yes, you are. You do great work at the Discovery Institute, and I should have mentioned to your fellow. But, George, we will have full show notes. We will post to all links and everything that you do and all your books and all of that. And I am just, we're just so honored and privileged that you came on the show. Thank you so much, George Gilder. Thank you. What do we got next week, Ron? Ed, we got Pricing on Purpose. We're going to talk about the 10 factors of price sensitivity. Outstanding. I'll see you in 167 hours then.
This has been the Soul of Enterprise, Business, and the Knowledge Economy, sponsored by Sage, supporting small and medium-sized businesses by creating greater freedom for them to succeed. Join us next week on Friday at 4 p.m. Eastern, 1 p.m. Pacific. We will have pricing on purpose. In the meantime, please visit us at thesoulofenterprise.com. We will have full show notes on our interview with George Gilder, along with links to where you can find him, his books, articles, other things about him. And folks, thank you so much for joining us and have a great weekend. We'll see you next week. 